Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today, we'd like to welcome Adam Mayos to the podcast. Adam has a background in tech and real estate. Adam brings a unique combination of skills to the table as an M&A advisor. I think you'll really enjoy the unique stories that he shares with us today and some of the insights that he brings to the table. First up, Adam shares the details of a large real estate development in downtown L.A. where a physician during the Great Recession purchased this property out of bankruptcy for pennies on the dollar. After investing an additional $20 million in preparing the property for market as a turnkey real estate development, the commercial realtors representing the seller missed a key component in the marketing of the business, which had a proposed selling price of around $500 million and a fully developed value at sale when the property was completely developed out of nearly $2 billion. What was the detail that the commercial realtors missed? Adam then shares a transactional story of how brothers of a second-generation business were making money hand over fist and how this cash flow from their business was a distraction for them that allowed them to be completely taken off course as they positioned their business for sale. We'll see how entrepreneurs often take their eye off of the ball when attempting to sell the business. However, this one story that he'll share with us today is a classic example that has a lot of moving parts and why it's so important to stay focused during the time leading up to the exit of a business. Next story that Adam shares with us is how a first responder and a part-time entrepreneur shared his moxie in being able to conceptualize a business idea from things that he noticed on the job and grew it into a phenomenal business concept and cash flow business, even pivoting the business from a wholesaler to a direct-to-the-consumer model. This is a story worthy of a Shark Tank episode. Finally, showing his tech chops, Adam shares a story of how two Silicon Valley entrepreneurs built a subscription-based business in the health IQ space. Hiring the right talent was the key component that enabled them to differentiate their company in a crowded space in the health field, and then to position their company to be sold to a strategic acquirer that valued not only the tech that they had developed, but also their customer list. They had a great exit and a payday for their technical chops in building their business. This is an episode that you will need a pen and a piece of paper to capture the takeaways and apply them to your business exit strategies. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Adam Moss. Adam, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your company and where you're from and kind of what your specialty is? Absolutely. Thank you, Marvin, for having me on your show. Yes, I am from Southern California. Um, and again, uh, my name is Adam Oz. I am with uh, M&A Business Advisors. Uh, we are 
a brokerage. Um, again, we have uh, different offices. The office that I uh, work out of is out of the Los Angeles and um, area. Uh, we have uh, different uh, uh, regions that we also kind of uh, focus on. I work in uh, Los Angeles and Ventura County down here in Southern California. The area that I specialize is the area that I have the most experience with is um, information technology. I have uh, 20 years experience in IT. I started out as a developer, programmer. I eventually uh, worked my way up to be a project manager. And um, yeah, I've been a business broker now for a number of years as well. All right. Well, cool. That gives us a real good idea of some of the expertise you have. And I imagine some of the transactions we're going to talk about here today. So why don't we jump in here and talk about some of the transactions you've been involved in that maybe were a little bit challenging? Sure. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. Um, so the, the one transaction that comes to mind, this transaction involved, again, a property that was situated in a very metro lucrative area in uh, uh, downtown LA. And they were selling the property as a development opportunity. And the property was owned by a very successful uh, physician. It had a successful practice and had a, a number of clinics that he uh, opened. Um, he had done some real estate investing on, on the side, was able to do uh, rather well uh, with that. Um, and right around the time of uh, the Great Recession, I believe, is when he was able to pick up the property. So we're talking back in the 2008-9 time frame? Exactly, exactly. Now, a lot of real estate developers were over leveraged at that time and didn't fare very well. Yeah, exactly. So he actually was not over leveraged. You know, he had uh, the fortunate uh, ability to have a lot of capital and, um, uh, you know, uh, banks that were still, you know, he had a good relationship with and were still willing to lend to him. Um, and so, again, he um, came across this property. He, you know, been from what I understood, um, uh, looking at this area, um, this metro area for quite a while. So we're talking really right downtown LA or on the perimeter of where a lot of the development is. There, there are not a lot of development opportunities down there. Yeah, there is a very uh, small amount of properties available, or even that go up. This one had quite a bit of extra space. It was developed in the 1950s and uh, at a time when, um, again, they didn't have the development in that area that they do now. So what you're saying is that he was a well-capitalized physician slash developer and he had the banking relationships to, you know, borrow money, and he found a developer that was probably over leveraged during the Great Recession. Exactly, exactly. And so this this company that uh, owned the property at the time was over leveraged. They got into uh, really bad debts, and they're even more so. You know, their tenants, um, you know, were not uh, uh, paying, uh, you know, their rent and everything else in the building, and so they. Uh, went into uh, you know bankruptcy foreclosure, 
And, um, you know, he was able to capitalize on that and, and buy this property for a fraction of the price. So he bought it out of kind of a bankruptcy proceeding? Exactly. So what type of uh, tenants uh, were in the building? Was it a office building? Was it a residential property? Just give us an idea of the type of businesses that were in there. Right. So uh, essentially, the, 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 there was a mix, but the, the, the vast majority of the tenants in the building we're part of a, you know, sort of a design cooperative. So you're talking like interior design? Yep, exactly. Interior design and um, different different uh, design aspects that, um, you know, maybe event companies um, would uh, take advantage of. Uh, some of them were involved in design uh, with, um, you know, the, the movie industry. Uh, but again, it all involved around design. So they had things like furniture or kitchen and home design, kind of like a design mart you see in a lot of major cities, right? Exactly, exactly. Really at the heart of this, um, uh, the property, again, was this business. He, he had owned it for quite a, uh, a number of years after buying it, was able to turn it over as and as the economy improved so did the tenants and their ability to pay rent again that that was a, a huge ability of his to basically turn it around from a, a failing situation to to a successful one and at the same time he had also invested it, with the profits he had also invested into making you know the the development opportunity so he wanted to get uh you know the licensing and the land development um, approved by the city um, for essentially the space that was not built on on the property and this was a large property and you know get future zoning for condominiums for a hotel so he was taking a commercial piece of property and going to the city and getting all the approvals and working through the political process with the building department and zoning department and all of the factions that you're dealing with there which is in many cases especially i would imagine in downtown la was not an easy process and i imagine it was fairly expensive do you have any idea of how much money and time he invested into getting all those approvals so he could package it up for a developer to buy? Yeah, from what I understood, he spent close to $20 million on, on, on the entire process. That's not for the faint at heart, is it? No, not, not for the faint <laughs> at heart. You have to have a, sort of a, a, a long-term vision of what you think can be done with the property. And I think he did. You know, He really saw this as being the next area of opportunity in downtown so so as he made this investment what was the total potential for development down there was it hundreds of millions of dollars or or more what are we talking about in types of a size of opportunity for total build out in the development opportunity yeah so essentially you know the the materials that we were and again i was working with a potential uh, a buyer, a development company. So you had a developer, either domestic or foreign, that was looking at this opportunity to come to the table and take it over and develop it, right? Exactly. And so what we were told is that it would be basically an investment to fully develop, fully build it out in in the, the hundreds of millions and the eventual, uh, you know, kind of uh, selling off all the pieces if, if you needed to would be close to $2 billion. 
Yeah. So this this was a large opportunity. I can only imagine when you're dealing with the city and you're dealing with a person that's put $20 million into it over a period of years and a developer that has the horsepower to develop a one or a $2 billion project out over time, that there's a lot of different interests here. We, what happened? Were we able to keep everyone at the table? Right. So, uh, you know, uh, essentially the, the, the company that was marketing this out, that was handling the, the, the seller side, the very large, um, you know, uh, very well-known commercial real estate company, they're very good at selling commercial real estate, you know, especially in such large projects. But the one part that I, I felt that they had lacked to really properly explain was the business. Now, you're talking the business of this design cooperative, right? Design cooperative. Yeah, there's really no clear explanation of what the business is, first of all. And, you know, what would uh, somebody that taken on the project would be required to um to do if they were uh, going to keep the business for one um because again it, you know let me just kind of explain the background on this so this got the approval based upon one keeping jobs in in the district because again this is uh, politics and they really needed to keep uh, the local jobs in 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 their district and second there was a a, a low income housing um you know, uh, deal that was struck. And that, that was the large part of why it cost $20 million because the, the owner had agreed to build out a certain number of low-income uh, units in the area in trade for these uh, luxury units that were going to be built on this property. Um, so both of these uh, things needed to be addressed. I felt that the low-income issue was addressed. Uh, that was already kind of ironed out. The one issue was the business uh, was never addressed. When you say the business was never addressed, I can only imagine what you're talking about here is that you have a commercial real estate developer that sells property all day long, but they really don't sell businesses and they don't understand the mechanics and the valuation and the intricacies of selling an operating business along with the property. That, that's exactly right, Marvin. Yeah, they really do not focus on uh, businesses uh, and, and, and they do that for a reason. That, that is not their bread and butter. That is not what uh, drives their business model. And so they um, kind of left it out, completely omitted it from any due diligence, from any marketing materials. You know, it was uh, left out. And yet that was key to the whole transaction because of the politics involved of jobs. And the business had the jobs. The property didn't have the jobs. The business did. Right, exactly. And in, in addition to that also... You know, whoever was going to develop the property, build out, uh, you know, high-end uh, condominiums, build out a hotel, while they're building it, the residual income that they would be receiving from the tenants and the business was key to keeping the tenants in the building, that was uh, something that, uh, you know, was not addressed because you really needed that residual income to develop such a property. You know, it would take many years and, and a long sort of road to get all that done and you're not receiving any income during that development process if you're not receiving it from the business again. All right. Well, that, that's interesting. So what you're basically, I think, leading up to here is the fact that a lot of people at the table and it's tough to keep everyone on the same page and looks like the takeaway to this is, is that you have to have all the different business and 
financial interest represented to pull something as large as this together to make it happen. And it sounds like it didn't get pulled together or happen. No, it did not. Yeah. In fact, until this day, you know, the, the development has not uh, started on this building and uh, there's no change of ownership. So, yeah, absolutely. You're right about that. You know, that um, you have to have people that are, uh, you know, uh, in essentially on the same mindset but also they understand the mechanics of um, a business. If, if the business is at the heart of a development project, then you really need to address it and understand it to be able to, um, uh, you know, again, take on such a transaction. Yeah, and I think it's a good takeaway for the business owners and entrepreneurs that are listening to the podcast and subscribe to it, that this is a situation where you really have to know what the key drivers in any transaction is. And you need to very clearly outline and define those metrics that are tied to that. If you don't, how can you expect a buyer to dial in and either pay your asking price or be able to understand the components that make the deal viable? So... That's an interesting one. We don't have too many real estate-oriented development type of projects on that, so I appreciate you bringing this to the table. Of course. Well, Adam, that was a great bit of information that you shared on that transaction. Why don't we jump into something that maybe isn't as real estate intensive as that one was? So do you have another transaction that was an uphill climb for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so another kind of challenging deal that I was a part of was a body shop company that was operating for a number of years. You know, they'd been in the business. This is a family owned business, um, passed down to the family. Kind of multi-generational? Multi-generational at the time. It was uh, siblings, you know, brothers that were operating it. And they were able to do quite well with the business. They'd handled luxury vehicles. So real high-end premium type of vehicles they focused on? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So that meant that they really did quality work. If you're repairing Rolls Royces or Jaguars or Mercedes or Porsches, uh, you really have to know your stuff and do high quality work. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, again, there's only a, a handful of, uh, of, of um, you know, companies that uh, take on such work just because it requires, you know, equipment, different equipment, different level of uh, standards that, uh, you know, your, your normal, you know, uh, Toyota, Chevrolet vehicles don't really require. Um, so yeah, absolutely. They, they were able to get that uh, uh, approvals uh, by uh, manufacturers and insurance companies and were able to do that work quite well. So they really had two components, I imagine, to their business. They had the walk-in off the street consumer that had a car they needed fixed or maybe restored. And then they had the insurance business that insurance companies referred them business for clients that held policies that were involved in an accident. Right, exactly. And again, the, the insurance business, you know, any any owner of, uh, you know, Body Shop will tell you the insurance is, is a huge uh, part of their business, um, you know, it's uh, it's what drives the business because essentially, um, you know, people don't want to pay out of pocket, and most of them carry insurance. And um, when they get into an accident, that's who uh, you know pays for the work. the The company had very good um, financials. You know, they had uh, grown the business. They were able to turn very good uh, year over year profits. And um, they had a very good revenue 
uh, coming in. So you have a couple of brothers running the business. Uh, they're doing year-over-year increases in profitability and transactions like this or businesses like this. Uh, sometimes people get fat and happy and take their eye off the ball. Right, exactly. And one of uh, the, the brothers, he was investing in, um, in real estate and wanted to get more into that. And so his focus was not necessarily on the business. So that was basically the beginning of the demise, you could say. So the golden goose was the business laying the golden eggs, and he was taking the golden eggs and going and investing in real estate. And that was more fun and exciting than working on cars, I guess, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, Real estate, uh, you know, can be, uh, you know, uh, challenging in its own ways. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was a real estate boom. And uh, that was something that, uh, you know, drew him in. I think the business or whatnot can get monotonous, can get boring. And so you get uh, bored with one thing and want to get into another. And so, again, we were able to um, uh, package the business, to market it. And, and and list it and uh, had some, some good interest. Well, I can imagine the automotive business and body shop business can be profitable if you run it right. I can only imagine just having been around business and entrepreneurs and attitudes of entrepreneurs that once you take the eye off of the ball, sometimes really bad things start to happen because any business is complex in a sense that you need someone there at the helm steering the company. So I'm kind of curious what happened to this business when the captain was away out doing his real estate development. Right. So, you know, again, you know, a a business such as this, you know, there is day-to-day challenges. You know, every every single transaction can be, uh, you know, potential uh, windfall, but it could also be a potential liability. Um, And so, you know, that that's something that was definitely not um you know not their focus and should have been um you know and 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 another situation and again uh, from what i understood because this had uh, only been relayed to me uh, further out it was environmental issue they had they had come upon yeah automotive oriented businesses that's always a big concern and they're tough to deal with yeah absolutely you know it, the good automotive businesses really keep a great record they um, keep a great relationship with wh- whoever the regulatory bodies are, so they can stay uh, on top of whatever the regulations are in the industry. Um, and they neglected to do so. Um, and as a result, they had run into so much trouble that uh, essentially they had lost, um, you know, their ability to operate operating license. Are you saying that the OSHA or whomever came in and padlocked the door? Well, I'd only found out about this afterwards, after I was no longer involved, but that that was essentially what I understood. Well, that'll happen. (laughs) Yeah. They don't mess around. They were keeping, you know, certain details, obviously, to themselves. They were not sharing with me. It always amazes me that folks believe that they can keep this stuff under wraps and close a transaction without it being discovered, and which is almost worse because then you have more problems after the deal closes and those issues surface. So was, it, was there issues with the quality of work uh, that was done as they started spending more time away? They, they had had a good history of quality of work for many years, but you know, like I said, it only takes one issue to arise. And the one issue that, again, what I understood happened was, you know, there, there was an accident um, resulting from some uh, faulty, faulty work um, done by the shop. 
and that resulted in a large legal battle and so that that uh, is another is another challenge that was looming over the business so you were able to find an interest from a third party buyer of some sort and they came to the table then all these issues surfaced and those things are hard to overcome mm yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The party that had come to the table is a large chain that had the capital and the ability to take on uh, the business and, and uh, you know, were actually interested, um, very interested in, in uh, you know, in, in, in this business. Um, what, what they were not interested in is taking on somebody else's issues. Understandably, that uh, created a hurdle that uh, caused this deal to uh, break apart. So, Adam, what would you say is the maybe one or two big takeaways here? I mean, you got a business that's just operating, coining money, and doesn't work out well. It, it's sad, but why? What are the takeaways? Right. So, again, the owner really took the eye off the ball here. They they really were uh, they were not focused on it as they should have been. And what we say in, in our industry, uh, business brokers, is you keep your foot on the gas pedal as even during you know the, the the time that you're listing the business and trying to sell it all the way through the finish line because um you know you you have not hit the finish line and the the, the one thing that uh you know will derail uh, a deal is when the business derails as well and uh you know buyers are you know, very smart to kind of uh, do their due diligence to figure out when something is not is not right and um yeah so i really think that you know if the, the takeaway is keep your eye on the ball and keep your focus on the business all the way through yeah especially keep that gas pedal to the metal all the way through to the end of the transaction and you've signed the documents and have your check or wire transfer these days absolutely all right well adam those were the challenging transactions you've seen and both of these situations didn't culminate in getting the deal done let's talk about some deals that you did get done sure absolutely yeah so i was working and came across somebody that had developed a business really out of sheer need in the market they worked as a first responder and during their line of duty and their work, they had come across a need for an apparel product that was in high need. And they designed it, developed it, and marketed it and were able to turn that design into a viable business. So you're talking about a first responder, you know, the firemen, the policemen, the medical personnel out there who aren't traditional entrepreneurial types, generally speaking, and they were able to conceptualize a product and design it and take it all the way through and get it manufactured and then market it? Yeah, and again, that that is quite impressive, you know, because, you know, your, your usual first responder you don't really think is has that uh, ability to do that i mean they're focused on being a first responder but this individual was um was multi-talented had had uh, you know great skill and great aptitude to get these different elements and put them all together and make a again make a viable business for themselves so was this brick and mortar type of business or was it a e-commerce business yeah so it's an e-commerce business and uh you know the, the e-commerce is actually one of my specialties you know again because of my it background i really understand uh e-commerce businesses and um the seller knew that um that's something that kind of um uh, bonded us in, in my ability to understand his business he went in, in the beginning 
you know, again, growing the business, he had really focused on distribution. So he had taken on quite a bit of uh, distributors, resellers. So just out of curiosity, before we get into talking about his wholesale distribution network, I'm kind of curious how he handled the e-commerce IT side of the business. Was he sort of on top of that? Was that a driver of the business or how important or how dialed in was he on that part of his business? Well, you know, IT was not his uh, expertise. Um, I think he had hired somebody initially to build him a website. Um, That website was uh, on a platform that was, uh, you know, at the time, it was already outdated at the time. And as the business grew, it kind of began to be more and more apparent to him um, that, um, you know, the technology that they were using was not at the forefront of e-commerce and um, so that was a challenge but he was still able to function and sell uh, and again I, I was really amazed that he kind of grew this out of nothing and so you were talking about his distributor network and the wholesale part of his business how did that impact his business so that tends to be the lower margin side of the business I guess yeah again uh, um, taking on distributors is something that um, you know what w- is is uh you know is is an easier maybe thing to do uh than attract individual customers you know you you get a handful of large distributors and um you know all of a sudden your your revenue may go up but your profit margin again with those distributors is not as good as if you were selling uh direct to the consumer selling via the website directly you know you are in control of your price um and you're in control of that selling channel so he started out with distributors, it sounds like, that a good part of his revenue flow was from distributors, which, as you said, is lower margin. And the more profitable side of the business was the direct-to-consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what, just out of curiosity, what percentage at the time you were involved and he was thinking of selling the business was wholesale versus retail? When I was involved, he had already uh, made the switch over to a more direct-to-consumer. So he was at 80% direct-to-consumer, 20% uh, distributors. But earlier on, I would imagine that it may have been just the opposite. Just the opposite, yeah. I think it was like 90% um, distributors, 10% uh, direct-to-consumers. It takes guts to shut off one valve while you're trying to get the water flowing through another faucet. Yeah, absolutely. It takes guts and it takes the ability to see the long-term picture because you're sacrificing, uh, you know, short-term revenue just to increase your profit margin. But that was something that, again, he was willing to do. Um, it, when you look at the financials, you know, it took a hit and you could see it. So, um, that, that was something that, you know, when we were marketing the business, you know, essentially had to be explained. And, um, you know, if, if you have a, a good business broker, that's something that they're able to, uh, relate to any potential, uh, buyers in a way that doesn't detract them from the overall, uh, vision and the overall picture and what's there. So when you were out and, you know, talking to interested buyers, did they understand the strategic shift from the wholesale side of the business to the more profitable consumer-oriented direct business? Were they able to grasp that? And were the buyers strategic or just financial buyers? Yeah, so many of them uh, did not understand it. I mean, they were focused on the, the hit that the business took. And they saw, you know, a, a growth up until the point 
of making that change. And they were really kind of focused on the fact that maybe, you know, it might have been a mistake. Um, but, you know, he he really, uh, you know, wanted to increase his profit margins. And to his credit, he did. Um, you know, it's whether or not, um, you know, a strategic buyer was willing to see that to fruition. Um, and so we were able to actually, um, find somebody that was, you know, it was, uh, you know, well capitalized buyer that ended up, um, actually buying the business, um, all cash. So that was, uh, something that you don't see too much in our industry, but, um, it did happen. Well, sounds like your first responder client did quite well. I mean, as you're explaining the story, you know, if you went down a checklist of what should be done from conceptualizing a unique product all the way through to a strategic shift from wholesale to direct to consumer and improving profit margins, a pretty savvy first responder, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. And he had a nice exit, so to speak. Nice payday. (laughs) <laughs> nice payday, absolutely. More than his two-week check from being a W-2 employee, probably. So you mentioned you spent your good part of your career in tech. Why don't you share with us a story about a tech-oriented transaction you've been involved in? Sure, I'll be glad to. So one of my experiences working with a tech business, I came across a business that was operated by former Silicon Valley guys that uh, you know were programmers, developers, and had an interesting company that was uh, focused on the health IQ sphere, a new but growing segment of the tech world. When you say health IQ, are you talking things like biohacking or like Apple's initiative into the health and data collection of our biometrics of blood pressure and everything else that they're tracking? That's exactly right. Yeah, the, the biohacking was really their focus. You know, these were developers that were great at developing software to really study the metrics of the products. So the products were were getting data. So were these guys straight out of Silicon Valley? Exactly, yeah. These these were very smart guys out of Silicon Valley that really were also had a had a very big interest in biohacking to really kind of perfect the tools, really the data. You really have to be passionate about it and they were. So they were, were able to take, um, you know, rudimentary data and really kind of understand what it means to have a high body fat matrix, whatever it may be. One of their products was a scale, a very, um, a smart scale that, uh, really tracked the user's different body matrix. And so they started out with one product, grew that into three, four, and were not only in the consumer lines, but also had uh, a professional line that was used by medical professionals, was used at fitness centers, and was also used by companies wanting to give their employees an extra added health benefit to their existing health insurance benefits. Well, I would imagine, you know, data, as far as insurance companies go, if they can assess the health of employees and that flows right through to insurance premiums and any business owner will tell you in today's world, major cost of employees are, is the actual benefits they provide and health insurance being a major 
component of that. So I would imagine that on the company commercial side, that that was a big draw to be able to accumulate all that data, especially if they had algorithms that could crunch and analyze that data and pull out trends and anomalies along the way. So is that their business model was to develop these sophisticated algorithms? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The real asset of the business was the technology. And so their algorithms, the software, the ease of use for a consumer or for any user uh, using it to really understand, not to overcomplicate a potential user. That was really things that they had focused on and were able to develop some great tools. Sounds like they had a business model that was both hardware sales revenue. You mentioned scales and things of that nature that were very much hardware based, as well as it sounds like uh, they sold a subscription uh, for employees and individuals and that they had reoccurring revenue from a subscription model. Is that how the business evolved over time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, the subscription model that they were able to build and grow that business was a huge part of their overall business. So they were growing their user base, were growing their existing uh, relationships with companies and had a, a very a good subscription model. And so that became very attractive when we were marketing and packaging the business. So, you know, when you look at businesses like this that have valuations, when you have a subscription model, the valuations is generally based on the annual recurring revenue, whereas the hardware portion of the business is very much driven by profitability and EBITDA, the earnings after interest and taxes and amortization. So how was the valuation? Was was it a mixed type of metrics to get the actual valuation of the business? And I would imagine that it was a fairly attractive valuation if they had experienced high growth on the revenue side of their subscriptions. Yeah, and you're right about that. The mixed valuation was really the key there. It was evaluating two different business models, ability to sell these products, a one-time sale, and then that reoccurring business that had to be evaluated at a different multiple. So we were able to combine those and get a good valuation for their business. And the business really had great growth. And so that added to the business valuation as well. And I would imagine if they had high growth and this reoccurring revenue, they probably were able to dictate the terms and get pretty much a full price offer and maybe all cash, huh? Yeah, so they were able to get a full price offer. We had a, a buyer that was very interested from the very beginning in this company. What was your key interest? What made it attractive to them? Was it just the metrics? Right, so the, the metrics was very important to them and the user base was also very, very important. You know, this is, they had a very good user base that just kind of uh, worked right in line with their existing product base. And so they could cross market their products as well. And they really were interested in growing that reoccurring subscription base across their entire platform. So what would you say the big takeaway in this transaction for our audience is uh, you could offer one nugget everyone could think about here in this transaction? What would that nugget be? Well, I, I, I guess you could say that the riches is in the niches. You know, this is a niche business that was very well established as far as the software. It was ahead of um, many of its competitors and they were able to position themselves 
very well in a very competitive space because of that niche that they held. You know, whenever you're, you know, especially since you're coming out of the technology field, that so much as technology is driven by talent. A computer programmer is not necessarily a great computer programmer. I can remember Bill Gates saying that his ability to build Microsoft was because he could recruit high-powered talent. It, was this driven kind of the same way? Were either of these founders that you talked about here, were they just techies that were good programmers? Yeah, so they were not just techies. These were actually very smart business individuals. And they also knew that, you know, in any business, but especially within the tech business, you know, hiring the right talent and being able to attract the right talent is really key to getting a business to grow and to really have at its disposal developers and designers that can make the difference. So that's that's something that uh, they shared with me that they were really kind of focused on. It's all about the talent and a good majority of their workforce had stayed on board. That was a huge windfall for the buyer. Well, a couple of takeaways that I got out of this transaction you were involved in is really the gold is in the data, riches is in the niches and the talent. It's all about the talent, especially in the tech field. Well, Adam, thanks for taking the time to share with us on our episode here today. If someone wanted to reach out and chat with you a little bit about maybe they have a tech business or sounds like you do quite a bit in real estate, how would they do that? What would be the best way for someone to get a hold of you since you're in the mergers and acquisitions field here? How would they contact you? Right. So, I mean, best way to contact me is on my phone. My number, uh, area code 310-890-0345. They can also contact me via my email. My email is adam at mabusinessadvisors.com. And I would be glad to, uh, to assist them. All right, Adam, thanks for sharing your expertise, your stories, and taking the time here on our episode of Business Exit Stories. Until the next episode, this is Marvin L. Storm. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.